welcome to another edition of the Bond Daft Podcast. Stephen Barry here, joined remotely with Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. So, yeah, we're, uh, of course, like everyone else in the entire world, affected by the small thing that is the coronavirus, COVID-19. So yep. we, of course, uh, found a way to get by, I suppose, with continue with the Bond Daft podcast. And we are in our separate houses recording on Skype. Yeah, so this episode we're hoping to do, because you haven't seen two of the, well, you had seen them but you hadn't been able to join the podcast. So we were hoping to just talk about the two films that you've missed previously. That would be Thunderball and Moonraker. Yeah. So first of all, let's just, uh, let's just talk about what, what is this? The, let's talk about the world right now. Like, yeah. how bad does it get? It's pretty bad. I mean, this, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this is going to, this is going to get quite historic. I mean, uh, in terms of being a podcast in the sense that, you know, it's really the first one where we've, I, any of us have addressed the situation that's, that's going on in the world right now. I mean, obviously the fact that the two of us are stuck in the house, I mean, it's affected every single person's life in the whole world yeah. right now um, in different ways. Well, we, I mean, we've joked about it, we, but we were saying about how it was almost like we were the civilians in a Bond movie and one of the megalomaniacs had actually won and they'd released some kind of virus <laughs> or something like that. I know, that, that's kind of how it feels like. We're just these bit part players and there's like some major... Uh, you know, as a scheme that's been going on in the background, that's the villain one, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, oh man, it's it's it's. It, we're in some uncertain times. Uh, it's actually genuinely scary. You're affected by it, and in, in, in a way that um, a lot. I have full sympathy. We've spoken about it off off air. Uh, obviously, your course been sidelined and. You're unsure how, what's going to happen with that. There's so many people. Weddings, I've got friends' weddings have had to be cancelled. My work, we're working from home. So far, has continued kind of as much as we can as normal. It's unprecedented. People have compared it to the Second World War. And even yeah. in the Second World War, schools weren't closed. A lot of the schools weren't closed, whereas we've got school closures. Yeah. Um, so this is even... You know, even bigger than that somehow. That seems insane. <laughs> and it's not just in Scotland. And we're talking schools in, in, in America and all that. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, it's. I mean, obviously, in the World War, you had um, kids were sent out to the countryside, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was back, yeah, yeah. Evacuations and things. Yeah, but I mean, it was never. I, I think as well. You know, I think what makes it similar to a world war is that it is affecting every single person on earth. You know, everybody's affected by what's going on. And, and yeah, this is, we, yeah, we all understand each other at the moment, which is quite unusual. Yeah, we've got a common enemy. <laughs> it is World War Three. It's the human race versus the virus. Yeah, uh, World War V. It's yeah, yeah, but it is. It's it, it, it kind of pulls us all together, doesn't it? In a, in a way, in the sense that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're all scared of the same thing, and you know, you're seeing so many like heartwarming stories coming from this on social media. People that are going out their way to do things, sort of charity in some form, uh, handing out hand sanitizers to people who need it. Teachers are offering their services to anyone who's having to try and teach their children at home anything they need, um, assistance-wise. All these kind of nice stories, and then you've got the 
the darker element. You know, the 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 panic buying and and the people you know arguing in in shops and pointing fingers at people for having this and that, and it's it's this sort of scaremongering as well. And it, it, well, there is a lot of reason to be scared as well. I suppose it's it's the darker side of of how people handle it is the the worrying part. Yeah. Well, you're going to get a lot of that. You know, the the kind of variance and reactions, no matter no matter what the situation is, but. I guess what makes it so dramatic is the fact that it's so big and that none of us can avoid it. Because you, because usually, if I mean, there are horrible things happening all the time, but you can look at it from a distance. Mm-hmm. You know, like not everybody's involved. Whereas if the food does run out, or you know, jobs don't come back, well, you know, or the system collapses, which is toss a coin at the moment as to what what's going to happen. But if that happens, then then we're all going to be dealing with horrible things. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the fear, isn't it? It's very easy to look at somewhere like Syria and think, oh, that's terrible. Or, you know, other parts of the world where things go wrong, like Ebola in Africa and things like that, or SARS when it was happening over in Hong Kong. And you you, and you have this kind of intellectual idea of that's bad, that that's suffering, but it's when it's at your door that you realise, you know, what, it, what it's like. But I think we'll be yeah. fine. I think after all these James Bond movies, we're more than prepared for disaster. <laughs> like, God. you know, we're ready for any kind of scheme, whether it's Mother Nature, you know, or or a megalomaniac. I think we'll be fine. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's it's unprecedented, and it's the uncertainty of how long it's going to last as well as as kind of the worrying thing. So it feels like we're all in a bit of a limbo where we can't really make plans. No one can make plans to go travelling. People who are, you know, planning on weddings and things like that have either had to put them on hold or have to consider when they actually can do it. The James Bond film, No Time to Die, if it went bringing it back to Bond, we spoke about it in the one you weren't there, Fran. Obviously, the biggest news. In fact, that was kind of the first major push. That was the first big one that they'd said, we are not bringing it out. Uh, when it, and it's release date, we're pushing it back seven months to November. So that was yeah. like an, a statement of intent, and they obviously feel that November should be a. I suppose we all hope that to God it is a safer time to that things would be back to normal. Obviously, they, yeah. they're doing it for financial reasons. They spent so much money on this film, and they obviously want to recoup as much as they would expect to make for this big event film. And I, I can see why. So even big. Bond fans petition to say, "Look, don't bring it out because oh, the money—they're not going to. You're not going to get the droves. People coming out in droves to see it. So they obviously thought, yeah, you're right, and pushed it out. That was the big push. That was the first one. And then ever since then, it's cinemas closing, restaurants, pubs, and things like that. Just a lot of the big films. I don't know um, if, yeah, I suppose all the other big films must have started pushing them. I know Mulan was meant to come out soon." You know, a lot of sporting events cancelled. Formula One season, the first month, is all cancelled. It is. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, did you see Formula One teams were uh, volunteering their expertise to build ventilators for the NHS? Oh, wow. No, I didn't. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah, I suppose there's a lot of technical experts there. Um, yeah. The engineers were, yeah. Um, and they were saying, you know, their ability to crank this stuff out. And I, I suppose, you know, all the cars would have been built and ready. So all the work should have technically been done. So they're sitting, 
you know, we could do something else then to help, I suppose. Yeah. Which is okay. Which is yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That is. It is mad. It is insane, and I think uh, well, we'll have to ride it out. I don't know how long to bring it back to the Bondaf podcast. I don't know how long, but obviously, just when the government feels that they can start telling people to start, you know, you can slow down the the, the social isolation, and uh, you know, you can start congregating again. But right now, for now, the for for the foreseeable, the Bondaf podcast will be a Skype remote. Uh, podcast. Uh, so I can only apologise for obviously a slight uh, dip in quality of the audio. If that is, uh, that's just something I'm, I'm, I'm needing to get to use, uh, get to grips with as well. But hopefully I can edit it to be okay. Yeah. Right. Let's uh, let's bring it back to this the topic at hand then, and that is Bond. And we obviously mentioned at the beginning you missed our podcasts for Thunderball and recently, which I still to edit. The Moonraker one. Let's uh, let's first talk about Thunderball. You uh, you have just watched this yesterday, Fran. This was obviously Sean Connery's yeah. fourth film, fourth fourth in a row. They made the four back to back. This film was sixty five, nineteen sixty five, and it was Terence Young that directed it. He was the director of the first two. That was from Russia with Love and uh, Doctor Noen from Russia with Love. So he came back after Guy Hamilton's Goldfinger. And the budget for Thunderbolt was at, I think it was 10, 10 million. Let me just check that. It was right. It was either seven or ten. Nine, nine million. Nine, nine budget, nine million. And it made huge bucks. This was for years. This was their most commercial, successful film, especially from all the back of all the toys and things like that. It rode the success of Goldfinger and then multiplied it. But yeah, Fran, uh, let's let's hear your thoughts on this one. Then, what was your overall take on the film? Well. I think I'd, I'd mentioned I found it quite confusing, really. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I thought it was all right. I mean, I, I felt like it was very much like watching. I mean, it, what was what year was it? Nineteen sixty-five, was it? Sixty-five, yeah. So <clears throat> you were right in the midst of. I can't remember when Mission Impossible TV show was out, like the the Man from Uncle and all that, all those kind of sixties shows. There was very much a sort of a, um, I, I don't know, a, kind of a kitschy. 60s feel going on that I, I got the sense like I felt like I was watching like what the guys who were like the guys who were most inspired to make Austin Powers like, just looking up sorry uh, the Mission Impossible TV series it started in 66 so this uh, was essentially an, an inspired probably by those first four Bond films which I yeah. think is the case for all of the stuff these films were influential in that way yeah sorry yeah. so back to your, your, what you were saying there but Austin Powers well, as well uh huh. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if, if you know, Mission Impossible, uh, like, because Mission Impossible is all about people changing their faces and being surgically altered and all these kinds of things. And um, but it was just, it was just some of the, some of the sort of, the cliches, I guess. Um, you know, uh, being held to ransom by a sort of a voice over a tape and amounts of money and and uh, what was it? Was it diamonds or crystals or diamonds or something like that, that they wanted? And, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, yeah, yeah. The guy who had his face changed turning up and just like shooting. What was it? Shot like powder into the face of the original Derval or something like that. Um, Dead Domino Derval. Mm, Francois Derval, who was there. Oh yeah, I was a brother. Yeah, a brother was the the guy that was he the pilot. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of thing, like that kind of um, 
like the the thing that stuck the things that stuck out to me with the film it wasn't so much the plot I, I actually was found it a little bit disjointed to be honest but it was this, it was the cliches it was the, I kept thinking this is the, this is almost like one big long list of Bond scenes or, or images that you would that yeah I, I get what you're saying like it's one of those things when you're watching these films now but then maybe trying I suppose. If you'd watched this film when we first watched it, and you've only watched the first three films, maybe this film is pretty much what everything else is copied, and that's why it seems so cliche. Is there an element of that, do you think? I mean, yeah. there was a bombast that this film had as well. A villain with a, a you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, he's got a fucking pirate's, um, you know, eye patch and things like that. It's all a bit much, but, you know, Austin Powers ripped that rip the sharks, you know, sh- then the laser beams, sharks with laser beams on tra- attached to their heads and all that. But it had the villain's lair with sharks. You know, a lot of that sort of Bond cliche. Like, all of it. You're, you're right, there is an element of that. I yeah. suppose, and did you feel that was to its detriment, almost? I'm, I'm not sure if it was so much to its detriment as it was just, I don't know. It, it didn't put me off at anything like that. I mean, it, it, I, I didn't... I don't know. I guess I just those those elements were the things that stuck out to me more when I was watching it. I suppose yeah. I, I, that was that was the th- that was what what was in my mind most of the time. Um, okay, but uh, I mean, I suppose the thing with Bond is that you know we, you get lots of scenery. Bond doing a lot of different things. Like obviously, I think he beats Domino when he's going snorkeling, isn't he? In the Bahamas, yeah. and and there's a scene in the casino where. Um, You've got Largo, obviously, and Domino there together. But the henchmen, we were talking about the henchmen, they stuck out to me as well. Um, I can't remember their names. Um, Largo's two guys, there was the kind of baldy guy and the, there was the short, stubby guy. Like I thought they were quite funny. Um, uh, yeah. Doesn't Bond disguise himself as one of them later on or something like that in the film? One of the henchmen. And that's when he uh, finds Largo's plan. Uh, Largo's got this plan, I think, to he's trying to some, commit there's like, some sort of Va- act of... Vargas? <laughs> Just check. Vargas, Vargas was the baldy one. He's, the no, he, he, he's the one that's killed by Bond with the spear gun. Ah. Uh, the, so I think he's the taller one, maybe? Uh-huh. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. He's the one that Lar- um, uh, Largo says to him, there's, there's a point where Bond gets to, or he's kind of hanging about with Largo in his estate. Mm-hmm. And the henchmen are there, and but uh, Largo's taking the piss out of what's his name again? Yeah, and he's Vargas. saying like Vargas, and he's saying um, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't make love. What do you do, kind of thing? <laughs> and then and, and the guy looks away. It's, like, it's almost like he's ashamed. And then he takes Bond round, doesn't he? There was that funny bit where they go shooting clay discs or whatever it is, and Bond's like, "Can I have a shot?" <laughs> and then. Um, the disc was in the air and Bond instantly turns around and blows it out of the sky and he's like it's very difficult isn't it like that do you remember that wee bit yeah 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 it's just kind of like taking the piss out of Largo a bit but um, yeah I mean I guess I don't know yeah I mean fair enough I um, I wasn't fully sort of with I I didn't really Largo wasn't the best villain like yeah we agreed on the podcast that we thought he was a he was a fine villain he was sort of um yeah, I thought he had a class about him. There was a sort I mean, most Bond villains do. They're never a sort of grubby street urchin type villain. They're like they're 
there's sort of a class. They're usually on a par with Bond from the sort of upper class type, and he has that, even though he's got an eye patch. Um, uh, I suppose it was the, their way of, you know, it's not very subtle. He's obviously a seaman of sorts, you know, a pirate, and he's, you know, he's got to have an eye patch to represent that. But yeah, he's okay. Uh, he's you, you can tell that he's not one that's went down in the history of the Bond legacy as like on a par with your well your jaw your well the henchman certainly like but even Scaramanga at Goldfinger and all that he's nowhere near that kind of the upper echelons of the Bond villains he's a mid tier Bond villain mm. yeah I mean he he wasn't one that I, I I really remembered I guess but his archetype of the eye patch guy you know wandering around. Um, with his henchmen and all that. It's pretty standard sort of thing, I guess. Um, yeah. What was the other thing that was sticking in my mind? There was the meeting, wasn't there, where was it all of the double O agents were together? Yeah, we we talk, we spoke about this that the the set design. This was um, I'm pretty certain this was back to Ken Adams again, uh-huh. uh, um, who did the set design and. The set design for the villains there was, you know, it was fine. They obviously, that scene with the, you know, Austin Powers ripped that, you know, the the scene when like the hand over the buttons and, you know, the sort of scene is written like the guy who's getting all the heat from Blofeld is the one that's going to get like whatever his chair drops out or whatever. But then it's the guy next to him who's sitting casually like smoking a cigarette or something like that, who then has obviously been found out for whatever uh, Blofeld. Was you know onto him for embezzling money or something like that. So that, but the the villain's lair obviously was a bit. It was fine. It was kind of uh, kind of a look to it. A Bond villain looked to it. But the the MI six chamber where it was huge. It was ridiculously over this over the top. You know there was no need for it to be that big. The the, the MI six agents were sitting about a mile away from the rest of the the actual heads. It was hilarious. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. I mean, I did laugh when that that painting lifted up and this enormous map was there. Yeah, Huge, yeah. Massive map, just excess. There's no need for it. Yeah. But then again, that's that's Bond, isn't it? That's what these films were becoming. This was the fourth film in, and they were starting to really sort of like over exaggerate things, and there was a show offy element to it. But that's that's what made it great as well. Yeah. Uh, I like that. We we spoke about it on the original podcast having. Bond in a way mingling with the other the other agents and just for a second you glimpse and it's like nine of them so it's like double up to double o nine which is cool there was even there was a female one there as well which was interesting yeah and um, uh, did you notice something about dubbing in the film like uh, certain well, points throughout the movie like the, was... the villain Adolfo Celli he's dubbed I'm sure I yeah but was... it wasn't just him there was there was scenes there there was loads of scenes in the film where there was even like side characters talking. You could tell they, it was like pretty bad dubbing was done. Oh right, okay. Um, so that's something I picked up on from. from that's from interesting. I, it's probably from you now having seen the seventies films, where they're a bit better production. That you, when you're going back to watch a mid sixties one film, you're probably picking up on those stuff. You know, yeah. even close, more closely. Yeah, although I mean, in in almost every way. As silly as it was, it was still more, it was still more, you know, realistic than Moonraker. <laughs> like, like Moon, Moonraker. I, I mean, uh, the thing is, I, I almost don't want to talk about Thunderball too much. Like, I mean, I, I like. Well, to... uh, before like, before we get to Moonraker, let's just cover a couple of things. Then 
the theme song. What do you think of that, uh, Tom Jones? Yeah, I, I, I didn't really. It wasn't o- overly memorable, I guess. It's not. It's not my favourite. And do you know what annoys me more? I think I've mentioned it on one of the other podcasts. But if I haven't, having known that uh, John Barry wrote another song and then decided to go with the Tom Jones version to be in that other song, um, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, is absolutely brilliant. It is like, it has got a punch to it that the, the, the Thunderball theme doesn't have. And it, it's kind of then really soured me on the Tom Jones one. It, it's fine. It's like, yeah, it's not very memorable. I like the, the visuals, the, the title cards and stuff like that um, that Morris Binder's done. But yeah, the song didn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that became a main talking point for the film was its length. This was the longer one. This was about two hours, 15 minutes or something. And there was about a good, it felt like half an hour of purely underwater sequences. That is the main thing as a child. I always remember that. I bored to, as a kid, it bored, this one bored me to death. Rewatching it, I appreciate a lot of things about it. The visuals I loved, but the actual length of the scenes, there was an overindulgence with the editing, um, which was done by uh, Peter... Uh, forget Peter Hunt. He uh, he meant I've listened to commentaries and he mentioned that he was he had a version that was shorter and then he was kind of decided I don't know if he was encouraged by or whatever because the visuals were so great he decided to use a lot of it all of it um, which he normally wouldn't do because there's like so much just scenery and and things happening with no dialogue it's it's, it's at the time that was unheard of. But it is also, it can be lethargic at times. It can be a little laborious as as the film goes on. The first couple of sequences are great, but as it starts to get a bit mad, it was actually hard to follow the, the massive battle underwater, a lot of what was going on, who was who and why, what was happening. Mm-hmm. Did you feel but, that at all? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know. I mean, I guess you've got elite path. You've got your, your kind of final battle, I suppose, at the end where it was interesting that Domino was the one that killed Largo. Oh, yeah, on the uh, Disco Volante, the ship. Yeah, the harpoon or something. And yeah. then, you know, so that was all right, I guess. I mean, that was, you know, and, and the CIA then, obviously you've got Bond and Domino needed rescued together. So there yeah. wasn't really a case of Domino being rescued by Bond, I suppose. Uh, Domino's just a great character in this film. I think um, we spoke about her recently. Claudine Auger just recently died in the last month or two and in one of the podcasts we sort of did a wee tribute to her and, and we mentioned how we the scene I loved in this film and it's gorgeously shot as well um, is that scene on the beach when Bond reveals to Domino, I think it's uh, it's been a while since I watched it but it's not reveal about a brother's death and it's a sort of still shot on her and you can see her sort of taking the news in. It's it's a great scene. She sort of, there's a real, you can almost, it's the first time Bond seems sympathetic to a character as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't last very long. It's a glimmer almost. And then he's almost about to be killed by uh, Vargas. But yeah, it was a good scene. I thought she played it really well. I'd give her the credit from the acting perspective. Uh, I like that about her performance. Yeah. Yeah, I think she she brought a bit more to the sort of stereotype of the the Bond girl character, and yeah. also she she was absolutely gorgeous as well. It's, uh, it goes without saying, but uh, yeah. she was just a lovely you know lovely character. So yeah, I think there was a lot of things that I liked about this film. This film at the time I gave it three stars. 
having watched Never Say Never Again, that has given me a more of appreciation for Thunderball because Never Say Never Again is an absolutely terrible film. Terrible film. <laughs> and it makes me realise that how bad how easy it is to mess up the, 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 the story when you just have no clue and uh, you know, you just don't know you don't have the right people around you to make it. Uh so that's kind of where I realised, wow, Thunderball's actually not bad. It's a good, I like it. It's a good film. I would almost give it a four. I'm in between three and four on that. Probably a three, a three and a half. Thunderball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're lower. You're maybe a two. Well, I mean, it wasn't. I'd probably go for like a three because yeah. I don't think. I mean, it wasn't a terrible. It just didn't. It didn't. I guess. It, I don't know. It didn't catch me. Do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't like over overly in, in, intrigued by any aspect of it. There is something or, about that. I think there's a, a better edit that's been done. I think there's maybe a bit in excess in the length and stuff that it doesn't quite. The pace isn't quite there. Yeah, yeah. Bear in mind we're in the current circumstances right now. I think there's an element of we're stuck indoors. You know, we're trying to do like like usually getting a chance to sit down and watch a movie is a bit of a treat, isn't it? Whereas at the moment we're kind of just watching loads of stuff and playing loads of games and trying to, you know, like we're doing, like we're kind of sitting around, um, kind of waiting and maybe a little bit distracted as well. So I think in a sense, like Moonraker for me was more like comfort TV. Like it was nice to see something um, that I was more familiar with. Whereas with Thunderball, it just, you know, I, I guess maybe I felt a little bit distracted. I don't know. Yeah, do you think your attention wasn't quite on it really? Well, it was, but. I think it has to be something special to capture your mind when you're in the current circumstances. You know, I think um, there's a lot of things at the back of our minds at the moment. And if a film's not engaging you fully um, or, or isn't like a, like a four or five star movie, it's yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of your, your yeah. mind drifts, you know, while it's on a little bit. Okay, very quickly before we move on to it, just, I've just remembered a couple of things I just want your thoughts on. First of all, the very first scene, Bond has a jetpack. What was your thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> I do think, to be honest, jetpacks to me take you into the realm of science fiction almost. Like, yeah. it's a little bit crazy. Even though nowadays, like, I mean, we know that, that these things are a bit more achievable these these days, but um, I think he was, reminds me, was he not escaping his... Like, uh, he had that, he had done a... Um... He was on a mission, and it was that funeral scene, and he follows the what is seen supposed to be the mourning widow into this rich, you know, hall or whatever, and then he punches her in the face, and then it reveals <laughs> it's actually a guy. See, that's and, very Mission Impossible. Yeah, and then they have that mad fight sequence, and it destroys the room and everything, and and then Bond, I think, kills him, and then runs out. But takes like an apple or something from the side, and then he makes a quip. I can't remember what it is, and then suddenly walks out, runs out onto the balcony, and uses a jetpack, jetpacks down the way back towards the um the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, was, I mean uh, well, that that's the thing. I mean, that's again Austin Powersy. You know, mm-hmm. it's that it's that sort of feel, isn't it? It's the the crazy sort of unbelievable. Uh, kitschy sort of thing going on. But I suppose this was the first that was ever doing it. Remember when this came out? This was only after Goldfinger. Goldfinger it was the one that did that first. That sort of like larger than life silliness that uh, films didn't really have then. 
uh, on a bigger budget. And then this film just took that and multiplied it. Yeah, yeah it's kind of, yeah. it's been described as a, a greatest hits of all of what the sort of Bond um, stuff is, I think. Um, before it got to Moonraker when they're in space and things. But yeah, I, yeah, so that was one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. The other thing, which is also early in the film, was the, well, clear sexual harassment of the the sort of nurse in, in the, uh, in the whatever, the leisure centre he was in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was this when he, he was had a towel on lying on this thing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that and, other like, guy, that's when he sees the, the mark on the guy's arm, isn't it? Oh, uh-huh, yeah. I was just hoping to get the Bond as Dating theme back in because I feel like it's yeah. not gonna- much play recently because the films don't seem to have been quite as as bad for that. But this film to me was it was just on the same par with Goldfinger of Bond is a yeah he's a bit of a rapey bastard. Bond is dated. Bond is dated. Sexist misogynist. He don't care. Bond is dated. License to offend. Well, reminds uh, me what happened because I, my memory of that like I, I kind of um, my memory of is of him noticing the tattoo and then. Um, the woman asks, woman says something like, um, I'm sure you, widowers would like you, and then Bond jokes about how it was a guy, or something like that, but there was the widower in this case, but what uh, what was what was the thing that happened before that then? Uh, well, Bond had noticed the, the guy, and then he I mean, first of all, before anything happens with the guy Bond, he's just, he's been sent there just to uh, the relaxation centre, or whatever it is, he's there just to relax and stuff and he just starts groping her um the the, the sort of the woman and she fights him off says no and then the guy uh, let me get the chain of events now on yeah the guy then sneaks in when bonds on that sort of like no is it the is it the same woman that saves him yeah yeah she saves him he's on that machine a spinal traction machine it's called um lippy <laughs> and it's the so it's a health it's a health centre and Bond he's on to the guy and then Lippy tries to murder Bond by like the spinal traction machine thing. Presses a button that it goes into overdrive or whatever. I love the fact that all these safety equipment have all these horrible options. <laughs> I know. Who would that uh, be for? So then once I think he then Bond gets his own back on him. Can't remember what he does, but I remember he he, he like locked him in the sauna or something like that. But anyways, then he also goes back to the the nurse and essentially, well, forces her to have sex with him. She kind of like, you know, says no a few times, and then it's like a in the short shower thing. She then un like you can see that she's unrobing herself and going along with it. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable from a sort of like that seems like he was uh, taking advantage of her. I think you'd so, often yeah. you'd often wonder, wouldn't you, like you know what. It doesn't. It does. It doesn't feel like playing, does it? Like that's the thing. Like there's playing. There's there's almost like people can play a role sometimes. Like we all know that. Like sometimes a man or a woman likes to feel dominated. Like I, th- I think it's. I think the issue was that. It but didn't I don't think that was the case. Showing any yeah. interest in him, like uh-huh. flirtatious, yeah. until he was making all these moves. Whereas yeah, if there yeah. had been some sort of show that she was actually. Trying to trying to trying to on him, and then he goes along with it. It'd been it'd been fine, I suppose, but it's yeah. like no, he's kind of taken advantage of her, and 
kind of forcefully as well, which is really uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. There's a distinction between, yeah. like, you know, some... I mean, there's men and women who both like to be degraded or to be. Oh no, I know. Yeah, it's more just. But yeah. it's like, but it's, it, but it's something that that you already know. Whereas, but how could Bond possibly know? Do you know what I mean? He couldn't know. Do you know what I mean? He just starts kissing her when, like, she's just sort of like with him, and she's not showing any any kind of interest that way. That's what was like. Whoa. Just sexual harassment. Yeah, there we go. Just casual sexual harassment. There we go. Or uh, could it be that Bond is like Bond is the luckiest predator ever, and that like all of the people that is apart from one time that we've talked about before, all the all the people all of Bond's victims actually maybe did secretly fancy him. So he's it's the only reason he's got away without getting sued. It's because like he somehow just tossed the coin and like harassed people who like he didn't ask permission. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but but like, who knows. But it's certainly, That's from an thing, audience like, perspective, you just know that there was a, you know, hot-blooded male audience that are just like, yeah, get out there, and it's like, you know, that just, yeah, it's not really comfortable now. But you know, we've talked about it before. It's it's kind of, it's fascinating. Yeah. It really is fascinating because I think we're at a stage now where people like we're we're kind of more sexually liberal in the sense that you know what people do in their bedrooms is up to them and 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 you know there's a lot of really interesting roles that people play uh, nowadays but people tend to know them beforehand like you tend to mm. be a lot like i don't think well obviously it's not across the board but i think generally society would expect people to be a bit more cautious nowadays on the approach yeah. The, the con- consent is certainly, uh, you know, the important thing, and I think that's what was lacking in the scenes. It showed that Bond didn't care about the consent element of it, and that's what makes it uncomfortable. So yeah. we'll wrap that up. I think, uh, as I said, for me, Thunderball, despite that, and despite its longevity and a couple of scenes, that to me, I still find it on a rewatch, I quite enjoyed it. I think it was just a luscious looking film. I loved the underwater sequences. I loved the music in those sequences. Yeah, and I, I mean, that. to be fair, it did look good. It did sound good. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, but it, I'm a big one for a kind for a, a quite a. I'll be interested to talk about Moonraker after this actually, but I'm I'm one for a, a quite clear plot. You know, yeah. Where you, where you kind of like that if that's not there or there's not. I'm not so invested, or I don't feel like I didn't feel like um, what's his name, Largo, Largo, Largo. Yeah, I didn't feel like he was that invested in it. Do you know what I mean? I didn't feel like anybody. It just didn't feel like there was a lot at stake. I suppose. Whereas yeah, partly for a film that had like nuclear weapon, nuclear warheads at the center of it, I think, and stuff like that, and bombs. Uh, you know, that, yeah, it's an interesting point to make then that they somehow didn't have the high stakes. You know, uh, like that's an interesting argument. It just didn't feel yeah. like it. I think there was a lethargic nature to maybe to Largo as a villain. He didn't have that. He didn't build up the chemistry maybe with Bond, despite the fact that Bond's been you know flirting with. His misses and things like that. <laughs> well, he practically uh, let Bond take her away, away to the. Thing. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is, like, he actually came across like the section where Bond was with him on the estate. He came across as quite likable, mm-hmm. quite quite mm-hmm. a cheerful sort of guy, you know, like like not not creepy or weird. Um, uh, certainly at that point in the film. Yeah. Um. So I I, I thought, well, he seems okay. He seems a bit. He didn't feel very threatening, I guess. Okay. That's uh, wrapped up Thunderball. You'd give it a free then? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not one that I would watch over and over and over again, I don't think. Okay. It's, it's one, it's, it's, I don't know. 
I agree. We, we all gave it, uh, apart from Gordon, gave it a five. Uh, I think me and Steve at the Did time gave it a five. Uh, Gordon loves it. Yeah. He's, he says it's up there with Goldfinger and, and, you know, probably whatever other classics. I think he's given fives to. Yeah, he I, loves it. Yes, I mean, I, I suppose. I think the traditional Bond fan, this is actually really high up there. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's the different perspective. You, you remember that this was the film that set as, just as many things as Goldfinger did. All of the templates for what Bond films became. I think the two of them compared. Like, this took a lot from Goldfinger, but as well as that, it then added in a bunch of other things. It was the first film to have your femme fatale and Fiona Volpe's character. You know, the, the big me- me- megalomaniacal plot with the world at ransom type storyline. That's the first film that did it. Yeah. Because the, other, the others, there's, the others were small. The second film for Russia with Love was about a lectern just trying to retrieve a piece of, uh, you know, equipment. That was all it was, you know, it was, a, Which I kind of, I kind of like that. No, I know, I know, but I like that as well. Actually, that I rank that higher, that film, because that is a, so it's just a nice Soviet spy thriller. I love that. But this was the film that, you know, took the you know that the stereotype of the Austin Powers esque world to ransom plot. This is the first film to do it. Well, maybe Goldfinger, I suppose. That was kind of he was gonna but he was more it was a money focused agenda with that. About the gold industry and stuff like that. So I don't think it's quite the same. But anyways, let's now move on to your film that you clearly preferred. The second film that you've missed that we covered uh, in our last podcast. Roger Moore's Moonraker, released in 79. Uh, so this is Roger Moore's fourth Bond film with a whopping budget. This one was huge, uh, $34 million, and it made $210.3 million back. This was a huge success. Uh, and this film was obviously a, a result. You know, obviously, at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, released in 77, the same year as Star Wars, it said... The next film you will see, James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. And then the Star Wars phenomenon pretty much changed studios' kind of agendas and made cinema history. All studios then tried to get a space film out there, so the Bond film switched over to Moonraker. And yeah. Pretty much took the story, jettisoned most of what Ian Fleming had written, and created another story in there, and take just a, a few things carrying over. What's your... Your main thoughts on Moonraker, then? Just the craziest piece of shit ever. I mean, it, like, it, you know, uh, in a good way. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was like from the very opening right the way to the last second. It was just madness, and I mean, it, and it kind of got crazier and crazier and crazier. Like, um, just that whole bit with the almost comedy of the opening, like the parachute thing, and um, oh god, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and. Um, uh, because Jaws lands in the trapeze thing, and and there's all this craziness. And uh, I thought the tone, the tone at that point shifted quite weirdly. There was a, like a campy tone to that. I, I mean, that's what the, the the Roger Moore films are known for, isn't it? But there was just that. It was a, couple, a few tonal shifts that I was like a bit weirded out by at the very beginning. But the film mostly carried carried well, and and as a kind of consistent tone. Uh, but just that very beginning when the sort of circus music plays when he lands and all that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was it was mad. Um, I kind of liked I liked the fact that Drax got introduced fairly early. I liked that. Drax, yeah, that Drax yeah, true. There was no yeah. mincing around. We found out who Drax was. 
um, the centrifuge thing where he was like, I thought that was hilarious actually when Bond was putting that thing <laughs> and spun around <laughs> and like, uh, obviously he gets rescued. Um, I liked, uh, I actually felt really bad for that first woman that Bond bedded who gets then flipping, like, ripped apart by dogs. Oh my god, we spoke about that. To me, that was the first Bond scene that felt like out of a horror film. It was uh-huh. a horror moment, that, wasn't it? It was yeah. gorgeously lit, Steve um, commented on that. Uh, it was the way it was shot, it was absolutely beautiful, but it was like a juxtaposition of what you're actually watching. It was, mm-hmm. oh, it was scary. Yeah, and I, I mean, what a way to go. That, that, you, you're not going to go fast when that happens. I know. Um, and then obviously, uh, Goodhead, um, who saved, who, who, who was, she's CIA, but spying on Drax. You get that whole thing. Bond and her kind of team up. Um, yeah. But I like the, uh, that, that whole ridiculous scene on those, uh, cable car things where like mm-hmm. they're fighting on them and then, and then Jaws, so Jaws is like an, a paranormal being, like, like he, he's <laughs> yeah. he's beyond human. Like he's, he could almost be like an, in the X Men or like Marvel or something. Like this guy, <laughs> like nothing can kill him. Do you know what I mean? I think like I can't remember if we commented in the previous podcast, but you feel like there's how many scenes does he shrug off like a dust and things from like wherever he's just landed, like from uh-huh. like some great height or something's fallen on him. <laughs> he just shrugs things yeah. off. Like, and, uh, and as well, like the fact that he can, like in the last film, like where he can appear and disappear at will, like he just, uh, you know, he, he's he, and he can move to, between places really fast. I think but, they found uh, that in this film. I think in the first film, that Spy Who Loved Me, he has that uh, that he's got a scary kind of side to him. I, the, the first half of this Moonraker a little, but they, he's the comedy in this film. No, there's no question about it. And I think, I think I mentioned in the previous podcast. Some of the comedy didn't work for me. I know you love it, but it didn't work for me with, with Jaws, actually. I, I, it's kind of the downfall of some of it. But what, what else did you like about it before we talk about that in more depth? Um, just uh, the mad, crazy bit at the end. The whole, like, they get on the station and then um, uh, Jaws, like, because Drax is trying to create a perfect race, like, because he's going to kill all humans on Earth, isn't he? And then he, but he's going to replace them with his special people that are, like, hand-picked and yeah. then Jaws, like, there's this scene where, like, Bond is like, well, what about Jaws? You know, and then Jaws, like, l- Jaws looks really upset. <laughs> like, <laughs> realises that, like, his boss is going to kill him, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, then Bond and, and this wee woman, Dolly, I think her name is, um, that Jaws is in love with. Like, but then just all the craziness of, like, that whole space station getting blown up people get blown into space and they're all flying around the place and there's that bit where Dolly and Jaws run towards each other and jump in there and hug each other and, and like look out the window and wave at Bond you know as their station flies off into oblivion yeah yeah uh, it's mad and then and then the Queen gets to see Bond and Goodhead having sex <laughs> at the end of the film. I love that. You know what's going to happen when it's like the line they deliver is like, uh, and we've got the Queen and the US President on standby. And it's like, oh, here we go. Yep. <laughs> and it leads to that brilliant final line, not final line, but that amazing line by Q. I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
whoever wrote that line, uh, the screenplay was credited to uh, Christopher Wood, but I don't know who if he probably wrote it. Then that is amazing. That he must have like sat up and said, "Yep, there we go. I've got the, one of the great final lines of a for a character in the film. Oh, amazing, amazing." And it's the fact uh, that Q got to see it. Yeah, Q. Yeah, so it's just the way he says it. There's that innocence about it. I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> like I get the feeling Q doesn't even get the innuendo. I just think he's <laughs> <laughs> oh, just so oh, straight, so straight laced. And it's the it's the Roger Moore looking at the camera and kind of like you know turning it off sort of thing. There's a twinkle in the eye. You know, uh, this is. Uh, yeah, it's peak peak Roger Moore uh, from uh, I'd say the Spy Who Loved Me. I'd say uh, yeah, it was good. Um, so you obviously really like this film, then? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was just a, a complete riot the whole way through. I mean, it was I almost to be honest. I think because it was so self aware about this, about how silly it was, I didn't I didn't feel critical about it. I just thought, well, you know, it's owning it. I mean, it was the film knew exactly what it was doing. Yeah. 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 True. That is the true. Whole way I think, think, yeah, that is true. I think there is an element of that. I just sometimes, well, I, I think the humor was much better than this than say the shared pepper stuff and all that. Whereas these film, I think Roger Moore's like one liners and things like that were, you know, mostly worked. There was a, you know, it was, they were fine, delivered well. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just Jaws for some reason. I just don't think worked as well in this one. I, d- I don't, yeah. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe I'm wanting more from it, and maybe I'm 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 being too critical on that. Maybe, uh, maybe that's an element to it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I, if if I felt that the film had been trying to, like, I think the reason was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like it was trying to. It, it was just. I, I could. I I just felt like everybody must have been having just a great time making it. Just a mad time. Yeah. So, true. And and. It's cool seeing a villain coming back. It's not an obvious. It's not a thing that happens normally in the Bond films. But uh, I think the reason we discovered on the last podcast was I think a lot of children had been writing in or something to like the studio or whatever to say bring Jaws back and make him Bond's friend. <laughs> uh, so there was an element of they were kind of catering or pandering to that sort of like younger uh, audience with that. Uh-huh. Uh, so you know. And obviously that paid off. The film was tremendous success. So maybe there's something to be said for that audience. You know, you can appreciate, and I like to an extent, but I did prefer the real scary villain that he was in in The Spy Who Loved Me. You know, appearing out of nowhere, making no sound, uh, disappearing suddenly, and then just in this force of nature. I found him. He was fantastic in that film. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is stuff that I found kind of silly in this. Like, um, basically, there's the section where, like, see, the whole bit in space, right? The American space <laughs> fleet with lasers, like, the the space station with artificial gravity on board, like, all of that was, it, it took a turn for the completely unbelievable, didn't it? I mean, yeah. completely, I mean it, it was, you, you know, you had to switch off. Yeah, yeah, you had to crank up your suspension of disbelief to like a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, there's no way. I mean, even today, it's the, fact, it's the fact that they arrive so quickly. The time, you know, there's no time difference or anything like that. It was like, yeah, send them up, right? Cool, they're up there. It was. It just made no sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just. I mean, even in 2020 now, 
the governments wouldn't have the technology to create anything like that. Do you know what I mean? There's no way that it would be even be possible to to have a space station like that, um, yeah. or to have a battle fleet ready. <laughs> I mean, where did it come from? Like, what, what was going on? I mean, I, I get that. The, the gov- I mean, it, it seemed at the start that it was almost like the government was working on a prototype plan or something. Mm. Then all of a sudden, action stations. But yeah, I mean, I think at that point, you're just enjoying the spectacle of the... the I mean, I, we were complaining. What was the one where they were on the hour at the end? Um, I mean, we said that... Uh, Diamonds are forever. Sean's uh-huh. Sean Crawford's last one. So we were saying, you know, about how important uh, a good end set piece is. Uh, I mean, it was the crazy. This was the craziest end set piece of all, but it was it was entertaining. You kind of edge of your seat. You're thinking, are they going to make it off this thing? You know, and, and what's going to happen to Joss? <laughs> yeah. got, you know, you're you're wondering what's you know what's going on. That's a big twist at the end when Joss switches sides as well. Mm-hmm. So that's that's quite a, a fun thing to see two enemies become allies like that as well. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, what was the what was the theme to Moon, to Moonraker again? Why is this going in my head? Well, that was Shirley Bassey. It was her third one, and um, it was written for someone else. And then late in the development, uh, he that guy pulled out. I want to say he was like Italian or something. I don't know, but she was drafted in. Uh, she's actually commented since that it doesn't feel. I think I think John Barry wrote it. I might be getting that mixed up. But she doesn't feel like it's uh, really her song. Um, she never got to market it. It did terrible in the charts. Didn't do very well. Um, it didn't really get any of a push. It was kind of a forgotten song. So it's kind of like, and she's not played it a lot since then. So what was it I, called? Because I because I, I seem to I seem to oh, remember kind of not really not really liking it very much. It didn't do it for me. Bizarrely, on the last podcast um, with Stephen Gordon, we were all over the shop with it. I can't remember who loved it. It may have been Steve or Gordon. It's their favourite. Uh, and and the other, I was in the lower end of it. It didn't do much for me. So, yeah, it's not one of my... It's not really memorable for me at all. Aye. I mean, the, the music in the film, I don't know whether it was overshadowed by just the sheer madness of what was going on. Probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I don't have a. It didn't make a, a massive impression on me. No, you're right. Uh, there was some classical music used around Drax. He was playing piano and things like that, but I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and so, some of the some of the scenes with Jaws and Dolly, mm-hmm. and some other places as well. There was actually some other music that was brought in from like class classical music world. What do you think picture. of the set? Sets were fantastic. That was one of the things we loved about it. I mean, it was almost an excess of just gorgeous sets. Every scene, and there was a lot of scene set, like a lot of globe trotting in this Inbinmaker. He seemed to be every five minutes in a new country or a new city, and a, a whole like it was like I think it was Brazil he was in and things like that. It looked amazing. Mm. Um, a lot of fantastic shots. Uh, so yeah, and some of the sets, obviously, uh, the final battles. Um, looked great and things like that a lot of the set design I think that was Ken Adams again I think in fact this was Ken Adams maybe his last film check that out oh it was Frank Sinatra that was meant to do the vocals for Moonraker he pulled out Hmm. I know he was originally considered but he didn't do it it was somebody else that pulled out let me just get that it was John Barry that recorded it but yeah uh, some some great sets and great scenery so madcap fun Uh, I overall enjoyed the film and yes. it was probably up there. There was not, um, I mentioned again previously, this film didn't have as much of the, that sort of 
well, what we spoke about it on where Bond is dated, essentially. I didn't really have anything like that. It was kind of like the film before, it's Spy Who Loved Me, where I wasn't embarrassed or cringing at moments because of something Bond's... I think it may be slightly sexist at one point, but that's about it. Like a, yeah. a comedy makes, but again, that's on Bond. That's not, you know, that's it. I think he's pulled up almost for it, I think. Um, but is he, is he surprised that is it the female is, is a woman, I think? Is, uh, not the female, obviously, but the, the daughter. Yes. I, I know... What is it he says to, like, he's so surprised, he just says, a woman. I'm sure it was this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, good Head. It was a Good Head. Good Head, uh-huh. yeah. Like, that That, that was in blatant sexism, you know, like, obviously, you know, just the way that attitudes were then, it's just reflected, I suppose. But, uh, you know, she almost shows him up. He looks bad because of it, because she's actually, you know, a fantastic, capable um you know, Spy. yes, agent. So, I think I like that about it. I really like that. It was similar to Spy Who Loved Me. I think they've got better in those in those two films with their writing for, well, writing for characters, but women, I suppose, in this instance. Um, well, you're getting closer to the current day, and you're getting closer to to them putting things in where Bond puts his foot in it. You know, so, aye, so that that yeah. was the intention, wasn't it? So they they said, well, yeah. we'll make Bond say something about he's one of the old boys, and then she'll say something back. You know, uh huh. Yeah, clearly, exactly. Clear, you know, clearly they were thinking about it from that perspective when they were writing. Yeah, and that's what I'm gutted about is the fact that we might not get to use the Bond as dating theme then if uh, if they keep this up. Well, we, we could re-record Bond's updated. Bond's updated. <laughs> yeah. Not sexist. Uh, not bad. <laughs> he really cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, He's uh, a man. We still need to get the problematic alarm in somewhere. Problematic. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so we'll finish up then on Moonraker. You you, you enjoyed it. What would you rate Moonraker then? Um, to be honest, I'd probably give it a four, I think, yeah. because I, I, it's not a perfect film, but it was it was certainly excellently entertaining. You know, I mean, it was... Uh, I, I was glued to the screen watching it. Yeah. And... Not because it's space, but just the sheer craziness of it. I was thinking, what's going to happen next year? I know. What is coming? And especially towards the end when it was ramping up and up and up. And I was thinking, this is unbelievable. You know? Yeah, it is mad. The the Moonraker laser, it was cool seeing that on screen. Obviously, I'm used to seeing that more in Goldeneye, the game. Uh uh, That was kind of cool. Yeah, it was a mad film. But obviously did well at the time. Yeah, I wonder, like, you know, I think it, Bond fans see it still more or less how we see it. They enjoy it, but it is probably ranked up there as the in the best. I think it went a little too far to be considered in the sort of best of Bond. I don't think it sits with Goldfinger and things like that. Um, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me, I think, is up there. But it's still, you know, it's right. It's still maybe higher up in the, in the middle films, middling ones probably. Because it added so much to Bond. Drax is a great villain. We've not spoken about him much. He had a sort of understated persona. Well, he wanted to be an English gentleman, didn't he? Mm-hmm. That was his desire. He wanted to be like the, the perfect human being. That sort of like, you know, he believed in the master race type. You know, there's a sort of Nazi-esque ideology there. Which is certainly interesting. Yeah, I liked, I liked, I liked the character. I thought he, was, he had the menace to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right then. I think we've uh, we have you know kind of done our extra little podcast. I think we've kind of covered 
things we really need to discuss. So you would give it probably a four. I think, I can't remember if I gave it a three or a three and a half, maybe. I, I don't know if I reached the four for Moonraker, but yeah, it, it still is an enjoyable film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's it's one I would watch again just for entertainment. I'd throw it back yeah. on sometime. I think the Moore films are probably the ones you can do that easier. I think, yeah. yeah. I've got a real soft spot for Roger Moore's era. I have he to is say. probably yeah he's probably up there as your favourite isn't he yeah it's just it's the the sort of smarmy jo- joke like kind of corny Selfish. jokes yeah bordering yeah. on dad jokes well they get that way because he's so old by the last film he's in <laughs> I know um, and and kind of see it even in Moonraker he's, you can start to see I mean he's I think he's 50 or 51 at that point Try to think when was that made? Like he was forty five when he did Live and Let Die. That was his first. So forty seven by uh, the Man with the Golden Gun. I think forty nine by the Spy Who Loved Me. So he was fifty one, around fifty one by the time he did this film. Fifty one, and he still get free to go. You know the thing is, like with Moore, I always felt like Bond took a lot of Moore's personality and Moore took a lot of Bond's personality and I feel like Moore sort of enjoyed that as a as an individual later in his life. Now you notice probably in this film, I think this is the first one where he starts to wear his big blazer a lot of the time with the six buttons on it like he, he, and he's got his sort of kind of puffed up hair and he's, uh-huh. he's, he's kind of dressed more like Roger Moore would dress like when, whenever Roger Moore would appear in chat shows later in his life he'd always be wearing the big blazer the same, you know, the same hairstyle the same yeah. kind of, you know, attitude. But this kind of, <laughs> you know, he would have one-liners and be charming in real life. This was, he brought, he wasn't just acting, this was the way that he was. Oh, no, I've listened to his commentary, he's fantastic. Um, even an older man, a sort of gravelier Roger Moore, not quite the same energy as probably the young Roger Moore, but yeah, he's still got that, he's got a sort of irreverent sort of self defeating kind of attitude it's all a bit of a joke you know he doesn't take it even though he comes from a really privileged background he mentions that himself like he is came from a kind of uh, well-off background and things like that he kind of had a respect for everyone around him he didn't look down on people and he just knows it's all a bit of a joke you know let's just, let's just have some fun he was a prankster on set and things like if you hear the stories he tells some of them <laughs> backfired i think with some, a couple of the actresses yeah, he tells a couple of stories but um some of it's quite funny the things he would do just because he would always do it to um uh, desmond llewellyn hugh <laughs> yeah he would change his dialogue so that like on the cue cards or whatever, the, the cards or whatever, the script or whatever, he'd give him a new script or something and so Q would be doing the scene and be reading saying entirely different lines that he was meant to be saying They'd obviously be looking around confused as to why everyone's like Roger Rue would burst out laughing and stuff like that. Brilliant. Yeah. So he sounds he, he sounds like a and he embraced Bond as well. Like he did all these commentaries, he he lived but he recognised that was, you know, probably not gonna get any better than that. He embraced it. The way that Sean Connery didn't. Sean Connery shunned it. There was a bitterness about it afterwards. Yeah, which I um, always think is kind of pretentious of some actors. It's like uh-huh. they think they're better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I, you know, I, your success came from that. You know, yeah. it's like, be grateful. Be, you know, yeah. got to have a bit of humility, for God's sake. Yeah, that's why I have an appreciation for Roger Moore, because he fully embraced it. I think he probably did fan conventions, all that sort of stuff. He was the kind of guy that yeah. 
just wanted to fill, do anything to do with Bond. You know, he did seven films, and he, I think if he could have done more in a way that you know it wasn't as great, he obviously I think knew his time was up. But he would have kept it going if 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 he'd been younger when they started, which he was circling Bond around Doctor No, like he was in their and like in talks to do it and stuff like that. But just for whatever reason, they couldn't get him. He was always doing other things. So he's always been around the franchise. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. So yeah, the, yeah. the idea of an actor hate, uh, hating their their success—it's almost like the top footballer in the world hating football. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you know, or hating the team that gave them the biggest success. You know, it's yeah. it's that. I, I think with Connery, it was uh, well, it was initially that he was getting that. We spoke about it in that podcast. You only live twice. The Japanese. Um, Paparazzi were absolutely, you know, everywhere. He couldn't get a, a moment's peace. But then, coupled with, he felt that he needed, he should have got more money. He should have got a sort of producer credits or whatever from Broccoli and Saltzman. He felt like he was as much the reason of the success as, as uh, for the franchise. And he was making money for them. Um, and he felt he should be getting more. And obviously, wants the pay rise. And they were like, no, we're paying you. Uh, quite an insane amount as it is so no so he was like well I'm done then I know I can get more elsewhere doing other things Yeah, but yeah that bitterness with Broccoli um, never never ended I don't think I don't think they ever they never got on after that I don't think um, you know words wherever they never spoke again which is a shame yeah uh, yeah anyways on that note <laughs> yeah uh, this uh, mini podcast seems to have went on for over an hour so <laughs> I know, uh, but that's the thing about about mini podcasts now is that because we've got nothing to do, and possibly anybody listening's got nothing else to do. Do you know what I mean? This is good for everybody. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. edit it down a wee bit, anyways. But yeah, I think we'll we'll call it. Uh, that's our extra piece on Thunderball and Moonraker. We're going to be recording tomorrow, hopefully. Uh, still to hear back from the other guys haven't checked my phone how it's going for for your eyes only uh, and we're all going to try and watch that uh, remotely uh, well just in our own houses and then talk about it uh, again like this Skype version of the podcast so yeah yep. see that's the thing the public need to understand that we are committed to, like, it doesn't matter if the world is ending we'll still do these podcasts we'll still find a way to, to, even if the entire establishment and system shuts down, we'll all be remotely watching Bond movies, <laughs> pretty much. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, on that note then, thank you, Fran, for joining me for this. No problem. <laughs> and we will be returning for For Your Eyes Only. Bye-bye. Adwa. Bye.